I was pastoring a church in San Jose at the time, and um, we decided very early on when we started welcoming in these kids into our homes, uh, our hearts just began to break for these kids who'd been abused or neglected. Um, and we, so we decided we'd invite, I was pastoring a real small church, and I met at a senior center, and uh, it was February of 2015, I remember standing in front of the congregation, I said, hey, what if we were to engage these kids and families together as a community? We came up with all these ways that we were going to do that as a, as a church. So as we began taking steps towards kids and families in crisis in our community, uh, we also began to build relationships with social workers. And at one point, a social worker sat down with me in my office, and she said, hey, um, Philip, like, this, has been, this has been great. We like working with your church. Um, she said, but here's the deal. She said, said, the reality is right now in the Bay Area, we're in, and she used this term, an emergency crisis. She said, there are far more kids coming into foster care today than we have homes that are ready to receive them and care for them and stand with them in their time of need. And she said, do you think that there are other churches that would want to come together and link arms as what she called a faith alliance and help us to change that crisis? And so guys, over the last six and a half years, We've seen church after church after church, family after family, say yes to that invitation from that social worker and link arms, churches like Soma. And so I want to honor you and say thank you for helping to lead the way. Over the last six and a half years, we went from uh, one church in San Jose, our little church in the meeting of that senior center, to now over 200 churches that have linked arms together. And they're raising up foster families, and they're raising up support for these foster families. And we're working towards this day when one day there's going to be a waiting list of families rather than a waiting list of kids in need of a home. And what started in, in, in Santa Clara County down in San Jose is over the first several years kind of began to kind of spread uh, across all 10 counties of the Bay Area, all up here to Sonoma County, out to where I am, in now, where I am now on the East Bay, um, all across. And guys, listen, here's what happened. Um, first off, it, it was mind-blowing that across the Bay Area, churches are linked together, right? The Big C Church working together on something that's so meaningful. But in addition, because of what's happening in the Bay Area, like the Capital C Church working together, unified around something so meaningful, leaders from other parts of the country have been watching what's been happening and seeing and hearing stories about what God's doing through churches and families. And so we've been getting invitations like, hey, we'd like to see a coalition of churches just like this in, in our own neck of the woods. We're experiencing similar uh, struggles in our, our foster care system. So last year, uh, we extended our coalition into Southern California, to Orange County and L.A. County, um, where they manage the largest population of foster youth in the entire country. In fact, there are more kids in the L.A. County foster system than in any entire state. So L.A. County alone has more kids in foster care than any entire state in the country. Right? But there's tremendous opportunity for impact and being able to share the love of God with these kids and families. And then last fall, um, churches and leaders in uh, northern Nevada reached out and said, hey, there are literally zero beds available for kids coming into foster care right now in Washington County, Reno, Carson City, Sparks, Incline, that area. They said these kids are sleeping on couches and office, in, in offices and in hotels and in big group homes. There's zero beds available. And so last fall, our, our coalition extended into northern Nevada. Our family just came back last night, in fact, from visiting some of our leaders out there. Okay, um, that's all possible. I'm not just saying this to Pat Foster sitting in the back. I'm saying that's possible because leaders are seeing what churches like Soma are doing right here, and they're saying, we want in. We want to be a part of that. And so I want to honor you and say thank you for that. And then also just to, to pause and to thank God for what he's been up to because God is on the move, and he is, he is rallying his church. He's moving his church towards vulnerable kids and families, and I think that's pretty awesome. Isn't that cool? Um, listen, um, so 
in, in the, over the last six and a half years since this movement started, I've had the, the privilege of you know, sitting down with people like Pastor Paul and just re- like hundreds of meetings with hundreds of pastors. Um, I, not one single time, not once, have I had to convince a pastor that this work matters to God. Out of all the hundreds of meetings that I've had, not one time have I had to convince a pastor that this work matters. Because when you open up the scriptures, it is crystal clear that there are some people on this planet that have a special place in God's heart, right? We talked about this when I was here last. It's the orphan, it's the widow, it's the immigrant, it's the poor. So in other words, it's those who are far from family, those who are far from home, those who have have suffered deep loss, um, those who are without protection, those who are without a voice, those who have been marginalized, those who are oppressed, um, those who are vulnerable. They have a special place in God's heart, don't they? Uh, in fact, Jesus would go so far as to say that, you all know this, he said, wh- he said, whatever you do for the least of these, it's like you're doing it for me. He actually identified with the poor. He identified with the outcast and the, the marginalized and the voiceless and the oppressed. He identified with the outcast. Um, many of you know, uh, Jesus actually had a brother on this planet. His name was James. Um, did you guys know, you know, James wrote a book <laughs> and James wrote a book about what it means to follow Jesus. And I was, I think that's so fascinating because here's a guy who actually had like this really unique perspective of Jesus. Like he got to see Jesus in all of his public limelight, right? He got to hear his teachings, see the miracles, see him, you know, in front of everybody with the spotlight on him, all eyes on Jesus. But then he also got to see Jesus when he went home and he closed the door. He got to see Jesus in private. Got to see his private life when people weren't around him. And so James would go on after spending decades watching Jesus in both public and private life. He would go on to write a book and basically says, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to live like Jesus. You want, you want, to, you want to live like him? You want to follow him? And then he writes this book. And he basically goes on to say, well, then you're going to be a person that's filled with compassion. You're going to be a person that cares about the vulnerable. You're going to be, I actually want to take you to, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to James chapter one. We're going to look at a few of those verses where he's going to tell us what it looks like to live like Jesus. Okay, James chapter one, we're going to start in verse 23. We'll read just a handful of verses where James is going to tell us a little bit about what it looks like. James chapter one, verse 23. Because I got a lot to say today, I'm going to go on without you if you're not quite there yet. Okay, <laughs> for if anyone, he says in verse 23, 123, for if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Go to verse 27. Religion... James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Two things James gives us here on a point out. He tells us what it, what it means to follow Jesus, our mission as followers of Jesus, and then our motivation. Okay, two things. So what we're called to as followers of Jesus and then why we're called to that. Okay, um, look first with me at the mission. James again says, verse 27, I'll read it one more time. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Um, Already, 
if you're listening, you might already have a little bit of a check in your spirit. What I just read to you feels a little bit churchy, feels a little bit outdated. I use the word religion. We don't like the word religion in our culture, do we? Right? We're, we're, we're totally fine to say, uh, I'm spiritual, but I don't want to say I'm religious. I'm, I have faith, but I'm not religious. I have a relationship with Jesus, right? But I'm not religious. We're very averse to that word. Um, but, but what James means here when he's using the term religion has nothing to do with stained glass windows, cathedrals, steeples, rituals, even Sunday mornings. That's not what he's talking about with religion, okay? When he uses the term religion here, he's basically saying the outward expression of what's true on the inside of us. Religion is the outward expression, okay, the outworking of what's true on the inside of you, okay? Here's, here's the reality. Each person in this room today we have deeply held beliefs, right? Like fundamental worldviews that, that, that shape how we see the world, how we interact with the world, how we set our values, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we spend our resources, how we set our priorities. Uh, it, it, the, we have these deeply held perspectives and, and on the world that shape and, and guide how we live our life. Every one of us do, okay? Religion is simply a set of beliefs that work themselves out in how we live our life. You follow me? So it's a, it's a, a set, which by the way, this is a, this is a whole nother sermon. You want to know what religion you have, but you can just look at the outworking of your life. That actually will help you determine what's the, the set of beliefs that, that you hold most fundamental. That's a different sermon. But religion is simply this. It's a set of beliefs that work themselves out into how you live your life. And so what James is saying, religion that is pure and undefiled. So if you're living outwardly, incongruence with what's true on the inside of who you are now in Christ. If you are living outwardly incongruence with what's true of who you are now in Christ, then a couple of things are going to be true about you. Number one, you're going to care about the vulnerable. That's going to be true of you. You're going to move towards orphans and widows is the way he says it here, but you're going to basically move towards those who are in crisis, those who are vulnerable. And number two, you're going to live unstained from the world. Two things. If you're living incongruence with what's true of what's you know true of you in, in, in Christ, then you are going to be a person that cares about the vulnerable and you're going to be a person that strives to be uncorrupted, unpolluted, unstained by the world. It's two things. Now, that might seem a little bit obvious. Um, honestly, though, I think we struggle. Most of us will struggle with one or, one or both, of those, both of those things. Okay? Uh, James, again, says, says this. He says, a follower of Jesus is going to understand that they have both a social moral responsibility, so moving towards our vulner- the vulnerable, and a personal moral, moral responsibility. Let me tell you why I think this is revolutionary even for us today, not just in James's day, but even for us today. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you just one example um, of how we see this play out in our culture. I don't know most of you. I don't think this will be offensive to most of you. It might be. If so, I apologize. And I hope you hear my heart in this. Um, but what I'm about to share with you, I, again, it's just an example of how sometimes we lean towards one of these, other, a, a, a social moral responsibility, moving towards vulnerable, or a personal moral responsibility. But it's got to be both. Um, this, what I'm about to share with you, is a sweeping overgeneralization. Can I say that too? This is an overgeneralization. But I'm going to talk politics here for a minute. Can I do that? This may be the last time, third and last time that I get invited. No, I think you'll be all right. Um, Listen, sometimes folks on the right side of the aisle 
are going to have deeply held convictions about our personal morality, traditional family values, conservative values. We're going to have deeply held convictions around personal moral obligations, personal moral responsibilities. But sometimes we're going to be a little more open-handed when it comes to our uh, social moral responsibilities, right? What we might owe to our neighbor, okay? Uh, th these are my rights. This is my personal freedom. This is my money. I made this money. Don't tell me to spend this money. Like, this is, this is mine. Don't tread on me. Like, this is me. This is me. Here's my, we all, traditional moral values, we're going to cling to that, but we're going to have a little bit more hesitancy when it comes to our social moral responsibility. Are you doing okay? Are you all right? Okay. On the flip side, sometimes folks on the left side of the aisle are going to have deeply held convictions around our communal responsibility, like social moral responsibility, social justice, community engagement right? Our, our obligation to our neighbors, and yet might be a little bit open-handed, a little bit more hesitant to say anything about how we live or you know, any obligation to live in a specific way. Like, yes, we have an obligation to our neighbor, but don't tell me how to live my life. I'm going to live my truth. Don't tell me how, don't, tell, don't put your morality on me. I'll live how I want to live. Yes, we have obligations out there, but don't tell me how to live here. We, we okay? Everybody good? All right. So here's the deal, though. It's, it's what James is saying is it can't be both. Or excuse me, it can't be one or the other. It's got to be both. Jesus' way is not the way of the, the conservative or the way of the liberal. The reality is Jesus has a higher view of personal moral responsibility than the Republican and a higher view of social moral responsibility than the, than, than the Democrat. It's, it's, a, it's a third way. It's a completely different way, isn't it? It's a completely different way. It's got to be both. It cannot be one or the other. And I love the other way that James says this, like in the same sentence. He says, you're, you're going to be a person that moves towards the vulnerable, and you're going to live unstained from the world, right? All in the same sentence, because these two, these two ideas are inextricably linked, aren't they? J Jesus would go on to say the very same thing, in fact. James is simply sharing what he's learned directly from his brother, Jesus, because Jesus would actually say this in one of his most famous sermons. I talked about this last time I was here a year ago. Matthew 5, where Jesus would say, uh, he says, you are the salt of the earth, he told his disciples. You are the salt of the earth. And we talked about this last time that, that salt isn't just, in Jesus' day, it wasn't just something that you put on your food to make it taste better. Although you probably did that too. Salt was primarily used in Jesus' day as a preservative. So you, if you had a big slab of meat, you would, you would put salt on it, and it would keep that which typically decays and falls apart and breaks down, it would keep it from breaking down. It would keep it whole. It would preserve it, right? That's what salt was primarily used for in Jesus' day. And so what I think Jesus is telling us is that you and I, as salt of the earth, we're to go into things that are falling apart, we're not to keep our distance from them, turn our, you know, avert our eyes, go the other direction, but actually enter into things that are falling apart and breaking down, and we're to bring healing and we're to bring wholeness. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. But Jesus would go on to say, he said, but if the salt loses its saltiness, you remember when he said that? If the salt loses its saltiness, it's not really worth much at all. Did you know that salt doesn't lose its saltiness? Salt doesn't have an expiration date. <laughs> there, there's, salt doesn't lose its properties by itself. The only way that salt can actually lose its saltiness is if something from the outside comes in and corrupts it. Salt only loses its saltiness if, if something comes in and pollutes it or corrupts it or stains it, as James says. 
So how does the world do that for us? How does the world corrupt us? I'll speak for myself. Perhaps the most alluring, powerful invitation that the world gives to me personally is to try to convince me that my life is all about me. It's, it's my pleasure, it's my security, it's my convenience, it's my comfort, it's my kids, it's my money, it's my time, it's my resources, my home, it's my country. It's, it's about me. But surely, please, please hear me, surely our life is meant, surely the vision that, that, that we have for our lives is more than just getting to the finish line as safe and as comfortable as possible. Right? Surely the vision that you have for your life is more than just getting to the finish line as safe and as comfortable as possible. Paul said it like this. He said, no, he said, no, 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 no. He said, have the same attitude as that of Jesus who, though he was actually God, (laughs) though he was God, in the flesh, like he was God, in, in essence, in nature, God didn't, didn't cling to that, didn't hold on to that, but he let it go and he made himself nothing and he took the nature of a servant and, and, and he laid down his life for us. And he says, that's how we're to be towards those around us. It's not about you, it's about moving towards the vulnerable. It's that, that compassion and self-giving love that Jesus has shown to us, isn't it? And, and James is saying the more that we live into that, the more that the gospel is going to be on display in a potent, beautiful, visceral way to a watching world. Um, Martin Luther, the reformer, he said it like this. He said, the world does not need a definition of religion as much as it needs a demonstration. Can I say that one more time? The world does not need a definition of religion as much as it needs a demonstration. And again, this is what James says. We give the world when we visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Of course, I don't need to clarify this, but I will. When James says visit the orphans and widows, he's not literally saying you should stop by for a visit, like you should swing by and say hi. Okay, we know that's not what he means. Right, that, that actually, the, the idea of visit there is simply you go to them. Like you redirect your path so that you're actually heading towards people in crisis. Like, our, our, again, our typical life is spent avoiding those kinds of things. He's saying, no, 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 redirect your footsteps so that you're actually moving towards people in crisis. Like, go towards them. Go to where they are. And the, the tense of the word is that it's to be habitual, ongoing, consistent. This is not just an isolated act of charity, something we do one time, a donation we give once a year. This is actually like a part of who we are. It's meant to be a part of like the DNA of this church. That's why I've been invited three times in three years, or two years, whatever, three times. Because it's, Paul's, Paul's heart is that this be, is, is a part of who Soma is. It's part of the DNA. It's part of the culture. That this would be a community that is regularly like, looking for new and deeper ways to move towards the vulnerable. It has to be part of our life as a church and part of our life as individuals, as followers of Jesus. Amen? Um, can I tell you a few ways that we've seen this kind of flesh out through Foster the City? Can I tell you a couple stories? Um, It's been one of the greatest joys of my life the last six and a half years, watching church after church after church, family after family, 
move towards the vulnerable. Um, let me tell you about my friend Jordan. Um, Jordan is, uh, he and his wife Becca, they live in, in the, the South Bay. I uh, met him very early on when we started Foster the City. And um, Jordan, uh, Jordan was uh, just in, coming into his empty nesting years. Okay, so he had just, uh, you know, they were just about to, uh, to see their daughter move out of their home. And, um, and he was, had all these plans he was telling me. He was going to uh, do some traveling, spend some time with his wife. He was, wanted to write a book. Um, he had all these plans. Uh, and then he came to one of our interest meetings, and he heard about uh, kids in his community that needed somebody to stand with them um, in that kind of stand with them in the gap. And so um, Jordan and Becca decided that they were going to get licensed and start taking in kids who just needed temporary placements um, until they can go back home. And so they started welcoming in these kids. And then he got this one little girl. And, he, and, and Jordan called me and said, Philip, you won't believe it, but like this little girl, turns out she's going to need a forever family. She doesn't have a home to go back to. And we're going to say, yes, we're starting over as parents. <laughs> we're starting over. And so just this last year, I had the chance to be on the Zoom call um, for this little girl's adoption. And there was not a dry eye on the Zoom call as Jordan was telling, as Jordan and Becca were basically expressing their love and commitment to this little girl and telling her, you know, we hope that we could have been a blessing to you, but you've been such a blessing to us. Which, by the way, this isn't in my notes, but in, I think it's verse 25 in James 1. It actually talks about this. It, he, he, uh, he says, like, if you persevere, if you're willing to not just be a hearer but a doer, you will be blessed in your doing. And I, I don't think that just means finances. Like, it's, it's that, what Jordan just described. We thought we were going to bless you. Turns out you were going to be the blessing to us all along. You're going to be blessed in your doing. Um, let me tell you about my friend Jan. Um, Jan is uh, uh, similar to Jordan. Like they, she and her husband, were, they were just coming into their retirement years, had all these ambitions. They were going to do all, all kinds of travel and such, and then they heard about kids in their community. And so they decided they were going to become licensed foster parents, and so they started welcoming kids, and they most recently welcomed in a, a, a teenage boy. He's 17 now. Um, uh, she said this is... She actually did do some traveling, by the way. Um, she, this, this last year, they took that 17-year-old boy out to Florida where they could go spend time with his extended biological family so he could just get to, get to know them and spend time with them. She said that, it was, uh, she said that this has by, by no means been an easy journey, but she said it's undoubtedly been one of the greatest things that she's ever done with her life. Um, she said, I, she said I, what she told me and my wife, she said, um, I, I know that I can't change the world for everybody, but I can sure do something for this one. How beautiful. Uh, let me tell you about a family um, at my own home church. Um, so in, in the spring of 2019, I got a, an email from a social worker. Um, and the social worker said, and she said, hey, Philip, we've got this little boy who's six years old um, who has uh, significant medical challenges. I can't overstate that enough. Like, significant medical challenges. Incredible. And she said, in fact, he's been living in the hospital uh, because we have nowhere to place him. We have, he has no home to go back to. And she said, we've been trying and trying and trying. He's been living as a result because of no place to go. He's been living in the hospital for eight months. This is in San Jose. Okay, um, like our backyard, like literally, he has no home. So he's living in a hospital. And she said, do you think that there are any families with Foster City that he, that, that would consider taking him? So we put the word out. And there's a family from my church. Um, the The wife uh, emailed me back and said, Philip, I think this is supposed to be our son. I think this is our son. And uh, 
I kind of, I honestly didn't believe her. <laughs> Turns out she called and um, they were able to expedite the licensing process and um, she quit her job. Their family turned their lives upside down um, and they brought in this little boy from the hospital home. Um, and for the last several years, they have poured their life. I mean, again, I, I, wish, I wish I could show you pictures. I wish I could, um, I wish you could see the transformation of this little boy um, and, and how well he has done. Um, but she said, what she told me, she said, Philip, there will never be one more day where this boy will not have a safe and loving family. Not one more day. She turned, they turned their life upside down. Um, let me tell you one more story. I could just, we could just spend the rest of the morning just talking stories uh, about, about what God's doing through, through, through the church. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll share this one. Uh, we'll, we'll share one. That's, I keep pointing back there. My son's back there. You may say hi, Gabe. Um, all the way in the back there. <laughs> uh, uh, let, me, let me share with you uh, something that happened a little bit closer to our family. Um, so the second little girl that we took in, her name was Karina. She was six years old as well. And uh, Karina, our, our season with her was so, so full of joy and, and fun and laughter um, that I was just thinking about this this morning. I just have this like vivid, we took her camping for the first time. So we took her to Yosemite and uh, I just, she was so excited. I remember it, we, uh, I had a truck at the time. I hid a bike in the back of my truck. She'd never learned how to ride a bike. So we, um, after we got all set up with the camp, uh, the tent and everything, we pulled out this bike and surprised her with her with a new bike. And we taught her how to ride a bike in the, like, the paved trails of Yosemite. That's not in my notes. I just, I, like, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Just, we just had some phenomenal um, memories like that with her. At the same time, our time with Karina was actually really hard too. Um, Karina had gone through a lot in her young life and had some really significant uh, challenges. Um, we all act out of the trauma that we've experienced in our life. Every one of us do. Um, and, and, and Karina had experienced quite a bit of trauma in her young life. And so there was, she acted out quite a bit. And that was pretty difficult. And um, much of our time with her, my wife and I both just felt like, man, we are failing this little girl. We just cannot, we, we don't have what it takes to meet all of her needs. Um, I remember sitting with my pastor one time in his office, just tears streaming down my face, just thinking, I just, I'm failing her. We stink at fostering. Um, and uh, um, it, was, it was a really hard, one of the hardest seasons of our lives, honestly. Um, uh, and yet it was so unbelievably worth it. Can I tell you why? Um, partly through our fostering journey with Karina, um, there was this one day we had to take Karina to a visit with her biological mom. So you do that oftentimes in foster care is you help them stay connected with their birth parents whenever possible. And so um, we, we dropped her off for a visit and the rest of my family drove down the road and we went to a restaurant to have dinner. Had dinner, came back out to our car and somebody had slashed our tires. No idea why, but we came out and we we're like, shoot, we gotta go get Karina. So we called our friends. Uh, her name is Jean. She's one of our support friends at our church. We said, Jean, is there any way you could go get Karina from a visit with her mom? Uh, we're stuck with flat tires. And so she said, sure, no problem. So she drove down, picked up Karina. And when she was picking up Karina, Jean, our support friend, got into a conversation with Karina's birth mom. Her, her biological mom's name is Tracy. So Jean and Tracy got into this conversation. And, and what sparked was a friendship. And so not long after that, Karina ended up being reunified, reconciled back with her biological family, who she's still with today. Um, but that, that friendship between Jean and Tracy uh, continued and grew. And at one point, Jean invited Tracy uh, 
to come and be a part of our church. She said, hey, come visit our church sometime. Come, come get some support and care that you guys need as you rebuild as a family. And guys, Tracy said yes, and she came to our church. Um, and for the last five years, she's been a part of our church family. Tracy and Karina and their whole family have been a part of our church family, getting the love and the care and the support that they all need. And a couple of years into that, Tracy placed her faith in Jesus. And we got a chance to see her baptized. Um, and what's more, um, less than a year ago, this, this last fall, Tracy emailed me. And she said, hey, Philip, guess what? Our, our Karina, uh, who, by the way, is 12 years old now, Karina, she said she's placed her faith in Jesus. And she's been begging me to be baptized. She said she's quoting scripture at me, actually. Like, I need to be baptized. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, we thought it'd be really special if you could be the one to come and, and, and do that. And so this last fall, I got the chance to baptize Karina as my sister in Christ. Um, and uh, that scared, hurting, beat-up little girl who came into our home five and a half years ago is now my sister in Christ. Which, by the way, this last Sunday, seven days ago, at my own home church, I walked by without picking up my kids from the kids program. I saw Tracy serving in our children's ministry. So Tracy, we, we got to invest for, for a while in, to her daughter, invest in her. She's now investing in our kids in my, my church. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> I think that's incredible. I asked Tracy if I could share that story, by the way. She said, not only is she, was she open to me sharing what God has done, she said, not only was she open to me sharing her story about her and about Karina and what, what she said, but I, I, she was excited for you to hear about what God is doing in her family's life and through Foster City. Isn't that cool, though? Um, again, I could spend the rest of our time, and I'm not even sure how I'm doing with time. Um, let, let me, let me, let me, let me just share this. A few, I, I'm trying to talk about this is what we're called to as followers of Jesus. We're to move towards the vulnerable. We're, we're, we're to understand that this, this life is not just about us, but why? How can families like Jordan and, and Jan and, and our friend from our church, Lindsay, um, who turn their life upside down, how can they do that? I'll tell you why. It's because, it's because this is our story too, right? This is our story too. Um, let me share something with you. I'm going to go a little off track here, but I'm, I have a point, so stay with me. Um, I saw I saw some young families here, some some young kids come in. So if you're a mom and your dad, young kid, let, let, let me speak to you for just a minute. Um, the more that I have been involved with foster care and understanding, um, uh, the more that I'm beginning to understand about attachment, the role of attachment in the life of a child, in the mind and the heart of a child. Okay, there are some things we're learning through research. We're learning that there are some things that are being affirmed for kids at a young age, um, as in, in regards to how we respond to them in their needs. So, for example, so when uh, you, have, you have young kids, when your little when your little one cries out in need, you have a baby and they they're crying out in need, and you go and you meet that baby in its need. You come and you pick up that child and you give it that bottle or you give the baby you know the warmth that it's craving or you help that baby fall back asleep when you meet that child in its need as when it when it cries out there are a few things that are being affirmed for that child that they're learning they're learning wow i'm loved i i matter and i can trust you okay i'm i'm loved i'm i must be valuable i must be important and i can trust you i can trust people on the flip side, of course, if a child cries, nobody goes to meet that child in its you know, tears and as, it's, as it's crying out for help. 
um, that the opposite is affirmed. And they're, they're learning, I must not be loved, I must not be important, and I can't trust anyone. That's what's being affirmed when that child is met with neglect or with anger. Okay? So we're, we're learning that um, over time, right? So, and here's what's been, again, one of the greatest joys of my life is watching the way families like Jordan and like Jan and these others who are moving towards the vulnerable and, and, and reminding them as they meet them in their need, no, 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 you are loved, you are valuable, and you can, you can trust me, and more importantly, you can trust the God that created you. That's what they're like. And you know how they can do it again is because that, this, this is our story. The story of God throughout history, it, it, over thousands of years in a thousand different ways, God has been trying to show us basically this pursuit of attachment to you and to me. He wants to, to ingrain in our mind, I love you, you are important to me, and you can trust me. So all throughout the scriptures, you're going to read it and you're going to find, oh, people cry out. They cry out, they groan, and God hears them in their need and he moves towards them and he meets their need and he gives them hope for a future. And why? Because he wants us to know, oh, because I love you, because you matter to me and because you can trust me. All throughout the scriptures, that's what we see. In the garden, God comes to man and to woman, and he comes and he meets their need. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He comes and he meets them in their need. Why? Because he needs them to know, I love you. You matter to me. You can trust me. Right? You fast forward, Hagar and the baby. Remember Hagar in the the wilderness with the child? The scriptures say that God hears the cries, and he comes and he meets their need. Why? Because he needs them to know, oh, because I love you. Because you matter to me. Because you can trust me. Right, you fast forward the Israelites in, in, in Egypt, in bondage. God hears their cries. He hears their groans as they're in bondage. And he comes and he fights for them. and He delivers them. He meets them in their need. Because he loves them and he values them. Because he's trustworthy, isn't he? Fast forward the Israelites in, in, in exile because of, their, because of their sin. God hears their cries and he brings them back home. He brings them on home. He meets them in their need because, again, over and over and over, because I love you, you matter to me, you can trust me. He hears our cries, he comes and he meets us in our need because he wants us to be attached to him and know those things that we are loved, we are valuable to him, and we can trust him. There's a place, again, we could just spend, again, all day long just looking at examples like that in the scripture where he's reaffirming that to us. But there's this one place uh, in the New Testament where Zechariah, who is the dad of John the Baptist, where he, um, when he hears that Jesus has come, that, that the Messiah has shown up, that the Savior is here, there's this one place where he cries out and says, praise God, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's his prayer. Praise God, for he has visited. That word visit that he says is the same one that James uses. When James says we are to go visit orphans and widows in, in, in their affliction. Do you know what he's saying? We're to do the very same thing that God has done for us. He has visited us. In our affliction, in our distress, he has visited us. And in the same way, we go now and do the same for those around us. This is our story. Um, I want to wrap up with this. Um, I just want to ask you the question, how is God leading you to do this today? Perhaps it's simply by moving towards, you know, your neighbor, your friend who's in need. It's been... uh, Something maybe you've just kind of been avoiding. Somebody who's kind of falling apart. They're falling apart financially. They're falling apart relationally. They're falling apart emotionally. You've been keeping your distance, but God is calling you not to move away, but to move in. He's calling you to move towards, to go and visit them in their crisis, in their affliction. 
Who's God calling you to move towards? Perhaps it's a, a shift of the way that you're spending some of your time or your money or your resources. Perhaps it's by getting involved with Foster the City. Uh, if that's you today, I want to invite you to, to talk with me, with, with Kim. Kim, can you raise your hand? You all, you all know Kim here. Kim is the advocate here at SOMA, um, which means basically she leads the way. She's in charge. Um, and so, um, so the families that set forward to foster, to support, to give, to pray, um, we're, we're following Kim's lead here. And so um, if you're interested in getting involved in any way with Foster City, by, by learning to, or by becoming a foster parent, by becoming a support friend for a foster parent, um, we'd love to be able to talk with you. Again, there is a profound need for more foster homes in Sonoma County. You could move towards kids and family in crisis right here in your backyard. Um, for many of you, that's not perhaps what God's calling you to do, but you could perhaps be a support friend for a foster parent. I shared with you uh, last time I was here that only about 40% of foster families make it past their first year. Okay, only about 40% will make it because it's challenging to do this work. Um, but with Foster the City, more than 90% of foster families will make it past their first year. Do you know why? It's because for every foster family, we're wrapping them with a team of four support friends. Three, four, five different households will come together and will provide the practical and emotional and spiritual support that a family needs to thrive and to foster longer and better. So if you're interested in getting involved in any way, I want to ask you to come see me or with Kim in the back table there, and we're going to have you fill out a next step card. And um, I'm not asking you to make any long-term commitment today, but would you be willing to give one hour of your time to come to an informational meeting where you could learn more about some of the different ways that you could get involved, as well as some of the needs right here in Sonoma County? That sound good? Okay. Let me close with this. Um, I'm sitting in the back there with my son. Uh... The Christian life can be summed up, I was looking at it this here, right here. We love because he first loved us. Seven words. That's the Christian life. He has visited us in our affliction. He has met us in our time of need. And now we get to do the very same thing for those around us. We get to be his hands and his feet. Um, and our motivation is that because this is our story. Because he first loved us. You, Daniel's been talking about it even as we kind of started this morning. Out of a response, out of the, the reality that we are loved, we are valuable to God, and we can trust him, we now get to let that spill out of our lives, that, that, that identity into the lives of those around us. And so we're going to take a couple of minutes, and we're going to remember who we are in Christ. And we're going to let that then spill out of us into our vulnerable neighbors around us. We're going to do that through communion. So each, do each of you have, if you, if you need some of the elements, Daniel will spend some time... Uh, We're going to take just a couple of minutes, and we're just going to remember who we are in Christ. We love because Christ first loved us. So let's take just a couple minutes, and let, just I'm to encourage you, think about maybe your own story. Think about the moments when God met you. There was a time in my life when I was hurting and broken and beat up and alone, and when I was at my lowest and my darkest most hopeless place, God met me there. And he brought me into his family. And he gave me a hope for my future. And when I think about what he's done for me, not only does it lead me to a greater sense of gratitude and worship, but it makes me want to do the same for those around me, doesn't it? So let's spend just a couple of minutes on our own in prayer, just considering God's work in our own life.
Much of communion is about remembering. It's about remembering what Christ has done for us. Remembering who we are in Christ, the one who is now in us and with us, for us. Um, So I say again, we love because Christ first loved us. You're his child. You're his daughter. You're his son. He loves you. You matter to him. You can trust him. May those truths create in you an unshakable foundation of confidence and peace and hope and joy. And may they serve as a motivation for a life of self-giving love and care and compassion to a world that's in desperate need of some hope. Paul wrote this. He said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. Yeah, not yet. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You can take the cup if you have not. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we remember today the body that was broken, the blood that was shed on our behalf. We thank you. We give you glory, God. We remember today. We, um, it is our desire, God, to go and to be your hands and your feet and to be a um, source of love to, to the people that you care so deeply about. Um, But God, we pray that our source would not be just mustering up um, effort, but God, that it would be out of an outworking, an overflowing of who we are in you now. A new creation, bought at a price. God, that you would um, compel us to live that same kind of love, to have that same attitude that you had, Jesus, when you laid down your life for us as a servant. We pray, God, that you would bless this church. God, I pray that Soma uh, would, would, would be that source of life in this community, that Santa Rosa would never be the same as a result of Soma's presence here in this generation, here in this place. We love you. We thank you. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.